LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Nearly every day, I commute to work on the subway. I live in New York. I get off in Midtown to go to my job, which is a pretty good job by most standards. I mean, I get paid enough, at least enough to support my family. I don't worry about the occasional doctor's bill. I'm okay. And every day, to get to this office of mine, I walk down a subway platform where homeless people are struggling to stay warm. And I think, how can I be morally okay with this? But then I go to the office. Because what's more true is that our entire system is rife with inequities. Businesses have a relentless focus on the bottom line that sometimes feels as though it's alienating people in pursuit of profit. The rich keep getting richer while poor and working class people struggle. I'm not saying anything here that we don't talk about on this show in many large and small ways all the time. And in many of the conversations we'd had in the last year about everything from marketing to good jobs, at some point this question comes up. Is this a systems problem? Is capitalism failing us? I want to be clear. I don't think it is. Rather, I think the issue here is a failure of our own imagination, that we need to dream up better options within the system as it exists. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Today's guest is journalist Nick Romeo. His new book, The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy, It illuminates our ruling beliefs about how businesses must work. He poses big questions that answer those beliefs. What happens when an 80,000-person company is organized as a co-op, in which no one person is paid more than six times the salary of the lowest worker? What would a community be like if every single person were guaranteed a job? Would everybody even want one? What would people choose to buy if they knew how much something really cost? Like, if you considered that it was made by children in a foreign country, or that making it required deforestation. Nick is convinced that we can invent alternatives to contemporary mainstream businesses, options that work better for humans. Here's Nick. I think the the view of human nature as sort of intrinsically greedy, profit-maximizing, unconcerned with social relationships, unquantifiable values. It's a a well-known caricature. And unfortunately, it does exist in some corporate boardrooms. But one thing that the reporting for the book uncovered was really just the variety and richness of motivations among business owners. The Mondragon network of worker-owned cooperatives in northern Spain is the largest worker-owned co-op in the world, and it's a truly enormous corporation. I mean, so for people who are concerned 
about size and who say bigness is necessarily evil. This is a very big corporation. They have over 80,000 workers, I think north of $11 billion in annual revenue. So 80,000 is huge. It's huge. And they are spread among different co-ops. Mm -hmm. So all the co-ops are federated into a larger structure, but they do everything from industrial production of things like jet engines, elevators, buses, to consulting, to basic scientific research, to banking, grocery stores. So the structure of the co-op can actually accommodate almost any particular business you want to pour into it. And the essence of that structure, one key part involves um, worker ownership. So workers are partial owners. They buy into the business and they accumulate capital in the accounts that they have. So then as the business does better, they get some upside as well. A second feature that I think is really striking, especially maybe for American listeners, is that there's a cap on the ratio of the highest to the lowest paid worker. And that's currently at six to one. Many of the Mondragon co-ops actually have a lower ratio. It, it might be three to one. It might be two to one. But it never goes above six to one. To put that in perspective, I think the most recent data in America, the average is around 350 to one, if you're looking at that same ratio for American companies. So the critique that says, look, it's corporate structure itself that is the problem. It's kind of, it's both too general and too specific. You have to say what corporate structure in what country and what aspects of that structure. You know, Mondragon, it does feel like an alternative form of capitalism that's hiding in plain sight and is in fact flourishing. Workers are very satisfied. Productivity is very high. They compete successfully for contracts and business around the globe. Nick, back up here. Why does the average, let's say, 28-year-old software engineer living in Spain choose to work at Mondragon knowing that in her most successful financial iteration of her career, she'll only ever make six times what she's making on that day one when she could go to Google? You know, that's a great question. They do lose employees, but it's actually fairly rare. I asked that question as well when I was there on a reporting trip for The New Yorker. I, I wanted to know too, why would you stay here? One quote that really stayed with me was a guy who's an engineer, maybe early 40s, had a few kids. He'd been there for most of his career, had no plans of ever leaving, could absolutely have made at least triple his salary if he went and worked in Madrid. He said it's the lifestyle. He would rather live there with a lot of people who feel like friends and community than he would move to Madrid and be more isolated and have higher inequality all around him. It gets right back to what you were saying. When you you go to, to work every morning in New York and you see the kind of the ravages of poverty all around you. I mean, imagine if, okay, it doesn't hurt to be in a beautiful mountainous region of northern Spain, but True. wherever you are, if, if you live in a sort of a less unequal society, that has ripple effects that shape everything. You know, how your kids grow up, what you do on the weekends. One thing that's extraordinary about Mondragon is like the social life. You see people who work on the factory floor sharing a drink with the vice president of a consulting firm on a Friday night. There's sort of all of these cultural and social benefits to lower inequality that I think those are pretty crucial in making a lot of the employees uninterested in leaving for, for greener pastures and higher salaries. 
This is a great example of creative alternatives to mainstream businesses. Of course, it is in Europe. Now, there are many people actively experimenting with alternatives right here in the United States. Nick tells the story of a couple of founders in upstate New York. They'd started and grown a tech startup, not far actually from where Kodak had once thrived. As they neared retirement, they could have sold that company, but they'd seen what happens to a community when a massive employer, say Kodak, disappears. So who knows what would happen to their business under new ownership? Instead, they started something called a purpose-owned company. It was meant to help ensure that when they were gone, the company would continue. A purpose-owned company is a company that's put into a purpose trust. This is just a legal vehicle where instead of shareholders or a few individuals owning the company, this legal document, a trust, is the actual owner. And then within the trust, you can specify some purpose. Your purpose might be profit sharing with employees. It might be donations to a local nonprofit or environmental causes. Probably the most famous recent example of purpose ownership was Patagonia, which transitioned just in the last few years to a purpose trust, um, where a lot of their, I think, in fact, something like 99% of the ownership of Patagonia is now held in trust. So the the company in New York, um, Optimax, they are one of many, many firms around the country that have embraced purpose ownership. And well, I should say they, they do custom lens manufacturing. So the components that are made at, at the factory, you know, they end up on like the Mars Rover. They end yeah. up in custom electronics, very, very high end high-precision lens manufacturing. So they had the chance to make a whole lot of money by selling their company. If you have a, a very profitable company with a lot of demand for their products, private equity is often interested, especially when the founders are getting close to retirement. Yeah. Now, the guys who founded the firm, they they thought about that. And I, I love the sort of candor with which they they describe this they say well look how much money does one person need you know you're you're just going to spend your retirement sort of doing money management at some point like if if it's a difference between 20 million and 200 million both of those numbers are so much more than adequate that the higher number may actually be a headache but more fundamentally than like how much money do i the founder need you know they're Their motivation was social. They wanted firms to stay in upstate New York. They had seen Kodak, like so many other manufacturers, offshore a lot of jobs. And so they were committed to taking this business that they had grown with great effort and commitment over decades. They were committed to ensuring that it lasted in perpetuity in New York, that the sort of pro-social vision of the founders where there's profit sharing, there's very sort of transparent communication between workers and management. Essentially, if you think about the character of the founder of a company, and then you, you ask, how could we keep that character once the, the, the person is gone? How do we ensure that the nature and the values persist? Purpose ownership is a, a vehicle for doing that because you can stipulate pretty explicitly, here are the values that the business will continue to have after I'm gone. This idea of 
purpose ownership, it's, it's a relatively new idea. What sets it apart? Why doesn't every company do this? This is a really good but difficult question because I think what you're asking in some sense is how does the the default or the status quo get set up? That's a tricky question. I think that has a lot to do with culture and history. It also has to do with legislation. You know, if there were reasonable incentives for for people to transition into purpose ownership, and by reasonable incentives, I mean, you know, if I'm a retiring business owner and I'm considering multiple options, like one option is selling to private equity, another option is converting my business to a purpose trust. Well, I still want to retire. Maybe, you know, I actually really do need the the payout of a few million dollars that would typically come from selling a business, or maybe it would be a few tens of millions. But there's a huge number of retiring business owners in America, right? So many people have built successful businesses. And then when you're you're hitting retirement age and you're wondering, how do I keep the business going? This is where I think the role of finance becomes crucial. There needs to be enough liquidity for founders so that it's not only the morally exceptional kind of founder who says, I'll just go ahead and take the the $50 million haircut and do the right thing. Like if there's better financing, I think many more people sort of in the middle part of a moral bell curve where most of us are, many more of those people will be motivated to to use a purpose type model. We're going to take a quick break here. More from Nick Romeo in just a moment. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Now here's a question for you. How often do you think about the process that goes into whatever it is you're buying? The coat you order from Amazon, the beef you pick up at the grocery store, that chocolate bar you got at the gas station... Nick tells the story of a group in Amsterdam that's trying to help us consider this, just this, when shopping, and to help adjust prices so that suppliers are incentivized to make sustainable decisions. It's called True Price. 
As you, you might guess from the name, the idea behind true price is to include within the price itself of a certain good, a lot of costs that are typically called externalities. So think about a hamburger. If the clear cutting of the Amazon was actually a precondition for the low cost of your hamburger, you know, you can multiply these examples with almost any good you care to think of. And the human and environmental toll of these goods, these are often costs that are just externalized. They're not part of the price itself. And so the cheapness of goods is, is a mirage. And if we knew the price and we knew the specific human and environmental consequences of these cheap goods, then the sort of question is, would we still want them? So what True Price does is they try to use the mechanism of pricing to account for more of these externalities. They say, here's how much biodiversity was destroyed. We, we consult with experts and ecologists to get a sense of what it would cost to restore those habitats. And then we come up with a reasonable estimate. I think the, the power of true pricing is one, that it makes visible otherwise hidden costs, but two, that it potentially then can sort of shift policy conversations. So not only might consumers want to pay more if they knew that these things actually cost a lot more, but policymakers might also want to redesign um, subsidies and taxes so that we're not subsidizing, say, um, industrial agriculture, which has enormous ecological consequences. We might actually say, um, what if food that is really destructive to human health and the natural world, what if that cost more? And food that's very healthy, that, that doesn't have an enormous carbon footprint, that's not going to have externalities in the form of medical costs from people who, who get very sick by eating it. What if those foods were really actually more affordable? I loved this piece because I hadn't really thought about the downstream impact of my purchasing as a consumer. I mean, let's take the example of the chocolate bar. Let's say the price of that chocolate bar shoots up from $4 to $17. And now, I mean, that chocolate bar I love costs a lot. I still have $17. But that leaves some room in the market for somebody who can figure out how to make an appropriately tasty, comparable treat for less money to put something amazing on the shelf. No, that's absolutely right. What's really powerful about it is that it aligns incentives. I mean, I know that's a, a cliche phrase from business school, but this true pricing actually would motivate other producers to do the right thing. Because the way that your true price comes down is by decreasing your externalities. So if you stop using underpaid workers, if you stop transporting goods on gas-guzzling trucks, the more good choices you make as a business, the lower your true price gets, the more market share you get. You can see how this would create a really virtuous cycle. So it's a great idea, um, but does it exist? It does. There's an Amsterdam grocery store that actually shows you the true prices and people pay them. And not only do they pay them, the surplus generated by the true price markup is then used to try to remediate some of those impacts. In his book, Nick reports a lot on experiments and what people should get paid and how we combat unemployment. His reporting calls into question many assumptions we make about the role work plays in a life. And I encourage you to read the book because it's really that good. Today, we'll talk about just one experiment that has a lot to tell us about jobs. 
In the fall of 2020, Austria piloted a job guarantee program in a small town called Marienthal. It's maybe 30 minutes outside of Vienna, a small town, um, deindustrialized area, pretty high unemployment. In fact, it was the site of a famous study in the 1930s on the effects of unemployment. A, a trio of sociologists from the University of Vienna studied this town and kind of documented the psychological impacts of, of not working. And what they found was really striking. Basically, even if people were adequately fed, they had enough to eat, they had clothing, they had shelters, all of their material needs were met, they were still just profoundly depressed by the lack of work. They really struggled just to fill up their days, to know what to do all day. So these were people who in the 1920s, you know, they had worked at a mill in town, they were factory workers, they had community, they had clubs, they had friends from work. It was really this source of structure and meaning, the removal of which was totally devastating. The job was so much more than the material benefits that it conferred. So that was the deep insight of the 1930s study. Now today, partly for symbolic reasons, this same town outside of Vienna is the site of a new study, like you mentioned. And what they're studying is the impact of a job guarantee on both the kind of mental and physical health of people in the region, but also on, on the job market and on the kind of broader labor market. Right. And so this town in particular found itself in a place where a large number of people were without a job recently, in recent history, right? That's right. While the the recent levels of unemployment were not as severe as 1930s. There are a lot of forces sort of coinciding today, you know, whether it's the rise of gig work, deindustrialization, um, offshoring and manufacturing. There's a pretty high level of structural unemployment in this region of Austria. So it was an ideal area to test a job guarantee. And Austria was also a place where unemployment is generous. So if you don't have a job, the government is still going to help you meet your needs, right? Absolutely. And you're right that that's a, a crucial point. One thing that's clever about the design of this job guarantee pilot study is the amount that it costs to guarantee people a job actually comes in just below the amount that the government would spend on unemployment benefits for them anyway. Right. So you can see how right away, you know, the objection that, oh, it costs too much, we can't afford it, at least in, in this context, in this country, it just doesn't apply. Because as you said, there are these generous social benefit programs, and, you know, the government's going to be spending money for people on unemployment. So what the the job guarantee asks is, well, what if we let them co-design meaningful work? They work with the community where they try to identify genuine needs that the community has, but they also pay attention to the needs of the workers. So that if they say, I'm really good at working with kids, I'm really good at landscaping, whatever people's interests and talents are, the, the people running the job guarantee kind of play matchmaker between community needs and worker needs so that the work is satisfying and meaningful for folks. So what struck me there was that the market, at least as I maybe had defined it in my mind, played sort of a secondary role in figuring out what the work would be, that, that the need of the humans in the community actually played the primary role, both 
what services and what products people needed in the community and what skills people brought to the table. That's right. Yeah. You know, if you mention the words job guarantee, people think of workfare programs where you're sort of forced as an unemployed person to take the first job that comes along, regardless of your interests. That's the end of the story. This is much more focused on the kind of psychological profile of the workers. So if you get stressed out easily and, you know, there's a restaurant with a really uh, busy dinner schedule, like maybe that's not a good job for you. But if you have some other set of strengths that that makes you really, really well suited to running like a carpentry workshop, you're good with your hands, you love working with wood. Maybe that's what you should be doing. And then, like you said, the the kind of market question is secondary. What it does for the human and the psychology of that human, that matters too. That's a crucial part of the design of the program. The biggest, like, aha to this experiment is that it wasn't something that people were mandatorily enrolled in doing. It was simply became available in a community of many unemployed people, right? That's right. And if you were a person living in this community, you had the option of just continuing to accept unemployment, no problem. No one was going to ask you to do anything different. Or you could go and get a job. How many people actually stepped up for a job? So the economists who are studying this this program, the last time that they analyzed the data, every single person who had the option of participating in the job guarantee chose to do so. So no one wanted to just receive money and do nothing. I think that that's sort of the big aha. And it leads me to the like the larger question. What is the optimal role of a job in a human's life? I could wax philosophical, but to keep it a little bit focused on the the people I interviewed and spent time with in Austria, I mean, one of the people he had he had driven for one of the ride sharing companies. Then he had a heart attack and it wasn't safe for him to drive. And he really struggled just to know what to do all day. He watched too much TV. He had trouble sleeping. As soon as he started the job guarantee, his sleep got better. Some of the kind of addictive behavior around watching TV just disappeared. So I think the social, psychological benefits of a job, when it's something that you like doing, right? right, I think that's an important caveat. When you've sort of participated in shaping the work you do. It feels meaningful to you. It fills some genuine need in the community. I think the psychological and social benefits are are tremendous. This made me a little bit skeptical of UBI, I have to say. UBI listeners is um, the idea of a basic income. Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah. So I think one danger of, of a universal basic income is that we could just recreate the study in the 1930s where the sociologists found that even if people have enough to eat, enough to do, they're profoundly depressed. They really don't enjoy life. That that worries me a little bit with some of the UBI proposals. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I noticed that you, you didn't really address universal basic income in the book. Um, as you complete this work, do you personally, Nick, do you feel more hopeful or less hopeful about our future? I think more hopeful. You know, the the thing the psychologists call availability bias, where whatever you happen to have encountered most recently is is most likely to kind of dominate your thinking and your worldview. So I think to some extent, my hope is just 
a natural response to availability bias, but I, I think you could also defend it on a deeper level by saying, if we're going to engineer our own availability bias, there is some case for doing so in a kind of energizing, optimistic direction, right? I mean, there's there's no shortage of devastating critiques and diagnoses of the current ailments of our world. It can be a little harder to know in specific detail, what are the things we can do differently? I wouldn't want to suggest that there are not different levels of power, you know, if... Well, for sure. There are certainly sort of public officials, leaders of corporations, people with with vast access to capital who have a, a different level of power than most of us. But I also do make the point, and I do believe that even if you are, are not one of those people in the kind of stratosphere of power, the way cultural common sense changes is through chipping away at things that once seemed to be almost like scientific truth and that now seem like very debatable moral proposition. A lot of things in economics, you know, that we now take for granted, things like a 40-hour work week, workers' compensation, these were very controversial when they were first proposed. And so some of the, the stuff in the book, not everyone would agree with it today, but the way sort of moral progress seems to happen, at least in the economic sphere, is that people gradually stop taking for granted things that once seemed completely inevitable. But, you know, in a few generations, our, our, our children and grandchildren may take for granted that externalities need to be internalized in the same way that we take for granted that um, young children should not work in dangerous conditions. Right. Um, maybe they should not work at all. These kinds of moral common sense points about economics, I think they do change. Conversation at the kitchen table, it, it's humble, but it, it does chip away at these big kind of dogmatic, megalithic beliefs. That was Nick Romeo. His new book is called The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy. I'm not overhyping it at all when I tell you it's one of the best things that I've read in a while. And we had to leave too much of this episode on the cutting room floor. So I hope you'll check it out. Here are some of my top takeaways. First, not everyone values getting paid the most as a top priority. I think here about the exceptional co-op members of Mondragon in Spain. They stay with the company for long periods, even when their skills could be valued more highly in the market. What they like is the context of a strong community, and they like it even more than the highest paycheck possible. Second, if we start exposing the true cost of goods, including how they're made, the impact on the environment, who suffers so we can have access to them, well then we can begin to realign incentives so that things that are better for the world actually become less expensive over time. And third, people mostly want to contribute and they experience a sense of purpose through that contribution. The job guarantee experiment is a great example of this. When offered access to a meaningful job that provided something of significance to a community, well, everyone signed on. Those are just three of many, many ideas that I take away from Nick's work. I'm looking for other places where business plays a strong moral role in supporting humans and even helping us thrive especially if it means doing this and sacrificing some profit at the same time. Perhaps you know some examples. 
why don't you join us for office hours? Come share your thoughts. We will go live on the LinkedIn news page this Wednesday at 3 p.m. If you're not sure where to find the link, please drop us a line at hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send it to you. Hello Monday is a LinkedIn news production. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer helps us keep the true costs of our endeavors in mind. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. I was going to say the last name is tricky for people. Romeo as opposed to Romeo. So my name is Nick Romeo. Have you spent a good deal of your life telling people it's Romeo? (laughs) You know, sometimes I just roll with it, but Yeah. yeah.